Last week when we studied Rambam, Harav Kapach gave us an example of one letter that made a mistake between an old manuscript and a current manuscript, and how that changed the entire meaning of uh, all the commentaries who were trying to understand the different uh, uh, editions of the Rambam. All of them had a struggle because there was one letter that was wrong. And now we're going to explore the phenomenon in general of the Chachamim who had Rambams and worked so hard to justify different things in the Rambam which are so easily explained once you have a Yemenite manuscript of the writings of the Mishnah Torah. Chazion Kayutzeh B'zeh Shachiyach Umatsui We're on page Yud Dalid, 14. So what I would recommend you do, by the way, is to start on page Aleph and just write, if it's hard for you. Or not Aleph, you can start on page Yud, write 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, just number it through, if you need help. Chizyon kayotze b'zeh shachiyach umatsui, the bottom paragraph, gam biyachas lahavanat divrei rabbeinu. We find a similar sight when it comes to dealing with the writings of the Rambam. Yesh v'chad ha-rishonim hevin divrei rabbeinu ba'ofen mesuyam. There are some who understood the Rambam in a certain way. O b'shel de'ahus varak duma shayta b'libo. Whether it was because, im b'shel de'ahus varak duma shayta b'libo, whether that was because of a, preconceived understanding of the Talmud, which was in his heart, Apirashi or Chad Geonim, whether it was because Rashi read the, the Gemara that way, or the Geonim read the Gemara that way. It's very hard. Rashi is really Rashi. But we get so used to saying Rashi, because that's the way it's said out here, that sometimes we get confused. In general, the names in Hebrew are switched. Mir'el and Mira happen to be even in spoken Hebrew, which follows a Sephardic accent, uh, follows the Ashkenazi rule. So where people would call me Yonatan, my real name is Yonatan. Yeah? Someone's uh, name would be... No, that's really... That's really uh, you know, Devora is really Dvora. Yeah, that, that would be the proper enunciation of the name. So Rashi, so Asher Chacham reads the Rambam because that's the way he understood the Talmud, whether based on Rashi or one of the Geonim. It could even be something that he understood the Gemara differently than the way the Rambam understood the Gemara. Even that, Rambam, Rambam. Yes? Why do I say Rambam and not Rambam? Because in English, spoken Torah circles, when you say Rambam, in their head they hear Ramban. Nachmanides. Yeah, Nachmanides. There's, so in Hebrew we say Rambam and Ramban. You just listen. One has a mem, one has a nun. But in English, meaning in the English Torah speaking circles, when you say Rambam, they always think you're talking about the Ramban and then you get into a very confusing conversation. Yes? <coughs> Sometimes, the Chacham who was understanding the Rambam, he is stuck in a mentality because he understood the Gemara in a different way than the Rambam did. And that's why when he's reading the Rambam, he now has to justify a conclusion that is different than the Rambam's because he understands the Gemara differently than the Rambam does. Because of that, he asks questions on the words of the Rambam. There are some times where you see the Ravad. Ravad is the one who makes comments in the... You're gonna, it's not actually printed here overtly, but in most Rambams, you're going to see little notes in the text. And over there, 
That's the writings of the Re'avad. Re'avad, the Ravid, the Re'avad, he, he makes a, he sometimes argues with the Rambam. And the Re'avad is arguing with the Rambam because the Re'avad understood the Gemara differently than the Rambam. So whereas here he's asking questions on the Rambam, it's not really a question on the Rambam. It's a question on the Rambam only if you read the Gemara differently than the Rambam did. And there were giants of the world who came afterwards. Who's Kesem Mishneh? Who wrote the Kesem Mishneh? It's a commentary on the Rambam. Rabbi Yosef Karo. Very good. Rabbi Yosef Karo is the one who... That's Maran. Maran has a commentary on the Rambam called Kesem Mishneh. He has a commentary on the tool called the... Bet Yosef. Yeah. He has a collection of teshuvot called Very good, Afkat Rochel, very good Chavan. Afkat Rochel. Maran has, wow, that was like a hundred points. Uh, <laughs> Maran has a Shulchan Aruch called Shulchan Aruch, very good. There's another book also. Whether it was written by Maran or not is really going to be between you and yourself to fight about. But it's Supposedly written by Maran. Araperes considers it to be written by Maran. This book is called the Magid Mesharim. Magid Mesharim, I have a dear friend, Rabbi Levi Moro. He bought me this book as a gift for my birthday when I still lived in Israel. Uh, Magid Mesharim is a book of conversations between Maran and a Magid, some sort of angel or spirit from the other world who used to come and speak with Maran. Very interesting things. Very strange things. Uh, written Aramaic, which is why I never owned a copy. But, uh, Levi found one that was translated Aramaic on one side, Hebrew on the other side. He got me a copy. Just because I understand the words doesn't mean now that I understand anything that happened in the book. And uh, There's an interesting introduction there to discuss whether Maran really wrote this book or not. Why is it not mentioned by the people in Maran's generation or immediately after Maran as one of the books written by Maran? That's already a different conversation. Uh, but those are the works so the case of Mishnah, whenever you want to see what Maran would say about a Rambam, you go look in the case of Mishnah. Mostly, the motivation of Maran for writing a case of Mishnah, what was the big critique that everyone had on the Rambam? Sources. No sources. Yeah? And we're going to discuss this at length. The reason why Rambam doesn't give his sources is because he's assuming that if you wanted sources, you would go look in the Talmud. He's writing this book for people so as not to confuse them. So you know when you read a book and it has a thousand footnotes? You ever read those books? I read the book. They make me upset. Yeah, you're happy about it. No, Rabbi Yosef does something interesting. At the end of his paragraph, he writes a footnote that's like 30 pages. But there are some authors that every sentence has a note and you read and stop and read and stop. And the worst of those authors are the ones who put the notes in the back of the book. Like notes to page yeah, 39, right, notes right. to chapter 12. You have to flip back. You know what I'm talking about? Zev and I read the same kind of book. So you're reading and you're flipping and you know it's, it's hard. You, you, do, you lose your train of thought. So Rambam didn't want to do that to the Mishnah Torah. He figured if you like chaos, you go learn the Gemara. But Maran's dealing with the critique of the Rambam. See, people throw things at you in life. They want to critique you. They'll throw many things at you. And they hope that one of them is going to stick. You know, look at any kind of elections that happens. They'll throw arrows and arrows and 90% of them miss. They're fake. They're not real. 
But the 10% that stick, well, they stick. And Bauch Hashem, because people are so stupid, even the 90% that are not real, they stick also. There are things that people believe that have been disproved over and over and over and over again. You know how many times you see a picture photoshopped? That you really, you know it's photoshopped because it's so many times it's been, and that comes to you, wow, I can't believe it. Don't believe it's real. It looks fake. There's so many people who believe these things. When it comes to the Rambam, people threw all kinds of things at the Rambam. He's a heretic. He doesn't believe in Mashiach. He doesn't believe in Torah Sinai. He's a, he's a Greek philosopher. Everyone threw it. They threw it. They threw it. They threw it. Finally, the one thing that stuck, he didn't bring his sources. So Maran decided to deal with that. Maran writes a case of Mishneh. And without Google, and without a Bar-Ilan responsive project, and without an encyclopedia, and without, Maran sits down on every halakha of the Rambam and gives you the exact source where the Rambam got these words from. Imagine writing a book like that. You're writing on someone else's book where they found all their information. Imagine how much you have to know. And before Maran sets out to write his own books, he first takes care of his rabbis, of his spiritual leaders. It's an incredible thing that Maran gave us. Now in the tool, he does the same thing. In the tool he does, in the Beit Yosef, something even, perhaps even greater than the case of Mishnah. Uh, the Beit Yosef is that much greater. What does he do in the Beit Yosef? Let's say the tool writes a halakha. So he gives you the background of this halakha. Words discussed in the Mishnah. Words discussed in the Talmud. Which Rishonim? The Rambam, the Rif, the Ran. Who dealt? Everybody who dealt with it until Maran's time. And then he discusses his own opinions on it. Which later the Shulchan Aruch becomes an abridged version of all his conclusions from the Beit Yosef. What do you do? Today I was dealing with halakha. Yoredah, chapter 95. What do you do when Maran writes one thing in the Bet Yosef and something different in his Shulchan Aruch? Meaning, Shulchan Aruch is supposed to be a list of his conclusions of the Bet Yosef. So which do you follow? Shulchan Aruch or the Bet Yosef? Okay, so very often the rule we resort to is uh, you go the Halakha is like the last thing, the later one. Why? You know, in the olden days you're printing books, you're not going back and editing all your old volumes, you simply issue a new edition and you assume that people will know that's your opinion. Same author. Yeah, same author. Correct. And therefore, oftentimes we follow what Maran writes in Shulchan Aruch over what he wrote in the Bet Yosef. This can make mistakes. Sometimes it's not really a contradiction. That's where we get in trouble. People make a contradiction that isn't a contradiction and then they show you Maran says two different things. It's not really two different things. Or better yet, Maran will write something in the Bet Yosef and he neglects to mention it in the Shulchan Aruch. Which makes you wonder, does Maran think it's not important? Or is he only writing this book for, like he says, for children, for young students, that, that the adults who need to know will look in the Bet Yosef. A classic example of that. What's an example of a halakha Maran mentions in the Bet Yosef and doesn't mention Shulchan Aruch? In the Bet Yosef, Maran writes, you can't have fish and meat together because of danger. Why? Chachamim say it's dangerous. Some kind of medical hazard when a person eats meat and fish together. It's not a halakha. It's a halakha because of danger. So much so that later authorities say that if uh, uh, meat were to fall into, uh, if fish were to fall into your stew with meat, it's not batel even in 60. Ki chamira sakanta mi isura. 
that a danger is stricter than halacha. Meat and milk, not a big deal. Danger is poison. How much poison per uh, quart of chamin are you allowed to have? Don't have any poison. Just stay away from it. Now, Maran also writes in the Beit Yosef that you cannot have fish with milk. You can't have fish with milk. Darama in the Dachei Moshe immediately jumps on Maran and says, it's a mistake. Maran didn't write this. There's no way Maran can read a Gemara. Always rabbis are eating fish with yogurt, fish with yogurt, fish with this, fish with that. And, and then Maran says it's forbidden from the Chachamim because of Sakana. The proof? In the Shulchan Aruch, Maran doesn't mention fish and dairy. Maran only mentions fish and meat. So here, people get into a whole war. Maybe Maran in the Beit Yosef said something, he took it back in the Shulchan Aruch. Why do you have to go that far? What, the Ramah is not reliable enough for you? That he tells you it's a typo, it's a mistake, the editor's a mistake in the Shulchan Aruch? In the Beit Yosef, they made a mistake. They, they, they printed something that wasn't supposed to be there. Someone got confused. Hari later on, Maran himself contradicts himself when he talks about eating dairy with fish. So it's not a contradiction. Why, have, why do you have to make a contradiction when there isn't a contradiction? What happens? So now you have a whole discussion. Well, maybe Maran only meant fish with milk, but not fish with cheese. Maybe that's why cream cheese and lox are okay. But cooking fish and milk is not okay. Maybe fish and butter is fine, but fish and cheese is not what exactly was Maran referring to in the typo in the printer's edition of Shukhan And now they tell you, Sfaradim and many Hasidim are very careful not to have fish and dairy mix. And you're right, that's the truth. The truth is that Sfaradim and very many Hasidim are very careful about this. The quintessential uh, Ashkenazi American Jewish food of bagels and cream cheese and lox is considered a... In Sephardic, well, Sephardic communities, we wouldn't eat lox and bagels even without the cheese. We just wouldn't eat that food. But let's say, let's say we eat the food. We never mix such a thing. Or, or the classic, you know, old world uh, Ashkenazi food of uh, uh, schmaltz and herring and herring with, uh, what do they call it? With a sour cream. <laughs> that food, yes. That food, I just thought of it. So that food would never be eaten, not, not because of Sephardic culture, but simply... This understanding of the Bet Yosef, many Hasidim wouldn't eat it as well. My wife grew up in a Hasidic community and never knew one Jewish person who considered themselves observant who ate cream cheese with locks in the same plate. Never heard of such a, such a heretic in her life. By the way, that was the basis of our marriage. We were able to agree on one food we wouldn't serve in our house. <laughs> Everything went downhill from there. That was a... <laughs> The truth is, the truth is that the, the Sfaradim are Kerites for the words of Maran. So if Maran said you can't have fish and dairy, we don't do it. Doesn't make a difference what the Ramah says. We don't follow the Ramah. But it's not true. It's a mistake. Now you know our opinion already by fish and meat that today there's no danger. I'm not telling you you should go make a, a salmon with pastrami fried toppings or another. <laughs> Not the recommendation for your healthy for your healthy diet. Like that Hungarian. Like the Hungarian. Uh, this is Zev and I were the yummy, yummy, delicious sushi. I mean, had kavua. Every time someone sends me a disgusting recipe on social media, I send it to Zev just so he can he can experience the joy of the. It's processed enough, Zev. You don't you don't have to process it anymore. 
But this causes for problems, not just in understanding or theoretical readings, but in practical application of halakha. So the case of Mishneh is a tremendous work. He says, Giants of the world, they show up on the scene. They start to jump through hoops. And they feel very pressured to, to answer or justify the contradictions in the Ramam's writings. Uli Ashvam, the top of page Tedvav. Until sometimes it looks like they're trying to put an elephant in the eye of a needle. Meaning, fancy Aramaic for impossible. What did they say? You're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole the other way around. So, yeah, this idea, their work, they went out of their way to try to make something make sense which doesn't make sense. And this becomes the way many Chachamim, even giants of the Chachamim, Read the Rambam, not for fault of their own. Because the text of the Rambam in front of them has a mistake. Sometimes even one letter of a mistake. How would you even know? It happened to me now. I was in Israel. I was in a kippah store. And I met somebody. And I said, hey, Rabbi, how you doing? And I said, I don't know who you are. And I'm like, wow, they're here from San Diego. But because I wasn't expecting to see them there, you, know, you have this thing where you don't expect to see someone. So you see someone that you, you know, you kind of know. If I would see them in San Diego, I know who they are. But I saw them in Israel, I didn't know who they were. When you're not looking out for mistakes, you don't find mistakes. There are some people who live their whole life looking for mistakes. Those are the people we spoke about the other week in the Shio. They're the Torah reader, uh, you know, the guys who are reading, the, they can never read the Torah for the community. But they have a chumash, and they have a pointer finger, and they have a loud voice. And they correct every mistake. The best part is when they correct mistakes that aren't mistakes. They correct the guy, the poor guy read it correctly. They're people like, they're critical. Everything they see, they don't. But for the most part, most people, my wife is looking at me like arrows of fire. Most people don't live a life where they see a Rambam, they don't assume it's a mistaken addition. They now try to justify what they know, what the Rambam is saying. Venam zazim kimalenima, kimalonima, and they are unable, they're paralyzed. They're unable to budge from the outlook that the earlier rabbis had read this text with. And like the Rambam himself writes in his introduction to the book of Mitzvot, it's as if the whole world became frozen when this rabbi wrote what he wrote. The Ramam has a hard time understanding how the Jewish people get frozen in time. How is it that all of a sudden this one Chacham said something and everyone's afraid? Well, the Torah froze over, that's it, we're done, the Ice Age, it's over. What happens here? Now, the opposite, it's dangerous when you think you could change everything. That's why we're not talking to Ami we're not talking to Ignoramuses here. We're talking to Chachamim and Tzamedei Chachamim. It's the scholars, the students of scholars, the people who understand that we're not looking to innovate needlessly. But when you have no other choice, and you're forced to learn HaKadosh Baruch Torah properly by neglecting another earlier Chacham's approach, that's the, that's the Kavod Torah. What does the Gemara say? In the place of a mitzvah, you don't give respect to the Rabbi. What does that mean? You make a mistake without Respectfully, but you're, you're correct. The greatest example? When uh, you're in the auctions in the Bera Knesset, you're auctioning off Kamidai, and the rabbi bids. So normally, if you were in the fish store, it would be inappropriate to uh, outbid the Tamikha. 
When the Knesset, it's okay. And there is a mitzvah. You don't have to give respect. Here we're all fighting over a mitzvah, and I have a right to a mitzvah also. The same attitude here. If they would have only tried to understand the Gemara from a different angle, from the Rambam from a different angle, they wouldn't have had any problems. Sometimes it happens that the Magid Mishneh or the Kesef Mishneh Sometimes rabbis come after the Kesef Mishneh or after the Magid Mishneh who were frozen in understanding the Rambam a certain way and now everyone afterwards is frozen. Well, Maran understood the Rambam this way. What can I do? And then you find a double layer of frost where we're frozen and reading something the way an earlier Chacham froze because he was frozen by an earlier Chacham's reading. There are times where it's clear that to Maran there were a few different editions of the Rambam. Sometimes Maran has the correct edition of the Rambam in front of him. But because he's reading the Rambam in a different way, he says, listen, this, this text in the Rambam has, makes no sense. So it must be it's an incorrect printing. And he goes to the incorrect printing for the correct source of information. You may begin to understand now why some people don't like Rav Kabach. He's saying some things that in other places may sound heretical. Sometimes Maran goes out of his way because he pushes away the correct printing of the Rambam for a more traditional reading of an incorrect Rambam. He's now stuck trying to explain the Rambam in a very uh, in a very difficult way. You know, there's a famous teshuvah by Rabbi David Shalom Shalom, Chief Rabbi of Netanyahu, passed away just a few years ago. Interesting chacham. I recommend you read about it. Rabbi David Shalush has a letter discussing whether or not it's permissible for a Sephardic Tanchacham who accepts the rulings of Maran to rule against Maran. There's a very lengthy letter there. Rabbi David Shalush in general is not from the ones who write short letters. Shalush is his name. Shalush. Rabbi David Shalush. Rabbi David Shalush sometimes in one book has 13 letters. Like in the kind of book where another rabbi would have 400 letters, he has 13. They're very long. Very long. And the gist of his letter, proving obviously through different sources, that if a Tamil has no way to logically accept the words of Maran, then he has no choice but to read a halakha differently than Maran read, even a Sephardic Tamil who must pledge loyalty to Maran, must, must rule the halakha against Maran. Because a real Tamikham, not talking about you or me, a real Tamikham has no choice but to follow truth and not to be frozen in I must read a halakha like Maran read it. That might be a rare occasion, but it's possible. So there was Farid Chachamim who say that if a Chacham is stricter than Maran, he has to do a vidu and maybe even a Kadosh Baruch won't accept his Tishuvah. I think about this every year at Pesach time. It may have been the Chidah who said that. That anyone who thinks he can be stricter than Maran, when it comes Yom HaKippurim, even if he does Vidui, maybe Hashem won't accept his Tishu. What are you busy looking for? There's a famous letter of uh, writing, the Ben Ishchayim. 
the Ben Ishchai heard about a person who waited 24 hours between meat and milk. And there's a Gemara that mentions such a thing. The Gemara says, you know, I'm a vinegar, the son of wine. My father used to wait 24 hours in meat and milk, and I just washed my mouth between meat and milk. It's like extreme. Vinegar, the son of wine, that's what he's saying. I mean, I'm the spoiled wine. And that result, he had a personal custom where he would wait. If he ate meat today, he wouldn't eat dairy for the whole day. Not 24 hours, but till tomorrow morning. And the Benish High writes to this person, who are you that you think you're better than that result? If I would know, if I wouldn't know who you were, I would excommunicate you from the Jewish community myself. You don't have the right to just show up. Judaism is not a democracy. You don't have the right to just show up and I, I want to be strict here, I want to be strict Being strict is not a value in Judaism. It's become a value in street Judaism. But street Judaism is not the Judaism of the Ben Midrash. In the Ben Midrash, there's so many things you haven't done yet at all then why are you being strict here? Do you ever speak Lashon Allah? Oh, you sometimes speak Lashon Allah? So then why are you even bothering to be strict about Kashul? You keep kosher? Stop. Now do the things you don't even keep at all. How many sinks do you need to have to justify all the bad things you say about other people? <laughs> Maybe you know why people have three sinks in their kitchen and then three for Pesach also somewhere else and they speak a lot of Lashon Allah? I mean, how much chalav Israel can you drink for you to be able to cheat on your taxes? What I'm telling you is that it sounds, it's, some fun, it's not funny. Rabbeinu Avraham ben Aramam writes that a person can fast his whole life for extra levels of piety and one day make a mistake, Lashon Allah, and all, all those 10 years go out of the window. Because nobody asked you to fast for 10 years. But a Kodesh asks you not to speak bad about other people. Judaism is not a democracy. It'll be a title for a book. Yeshua Rabotainu Chachmei Teman Heiru Lanu Al Havana Nechona B'Divrei Rabbeinu V'Asher Imam Muvanim D'Divrei Rabbeinu Yafeh V'Gam Mutamim Hem Im Sugiat Talmud Afli Says there are times where the rabbis of Yemen explain the Rambam properly and then all of a sudden the Rambam is no longer out of line with the Talmud but rather fits in perfectly. There's a, I saw once an academic book written by Tamikham. I don't remember who. And it's a, the thesis of the book was the Rambam never contradicts the Talmud. And even the places where you see the Rambam contradicts the Talmud, it's a mistake you have in your Talmud, not in the Rambam. Really, I would love to read a little bit more. I've made it my goal to go through the dozens of commentaries on the Rambam and try to sift out what exactly are the words of the Rambam, the ones who explain that analyze the words of the Rambam. And there are many commentaries on the Rambam. I made a limit for myself. You know, you can't do every book in the Rambam. I limited myself to 300 commentaries in the Rambam. After 300, I can't. I can't do all the work. Yeah. Now, if you want a list of those 300 rabbis, you'll find that uh, just a few pages after this introduction on page Chavtet, uh, uh, he mentions, he gives, a, it's like a bibliography of all the, 
rabbis that he quotes in his book. Oh. But this is going to become very complicated for us because Rav Kapach makes his own acronyms for rabbis. And sometimes you're going to find that we're going to be in the middle of a page and say, I don't know who that is. One of you is going to have to look for me here and tell me, oh, this is who he's talking about. This is the book he's referring to. Yeah? Now back, back to our, our page. That's how I began my work, one by one. This is, I was working at a set pace. But because I don't have not a staff of assistants and not a group of workers and I don't have a, a group of, uh, of uh, collectors. You know, he's talking about all the other rabbis that print books. And they have, you know, entire staffs and, and uh, research institutes. And uh, I'm just me. I don't have a group of uh, editors. I don't have a, a, a committee of, uh, of uh, checkers, you know, spell checkers. I don't have a society of uh, copiers. But like David HaMelech says in Tehillim, I am poor and alone. I'm doing this work alone. And together with my loneliness. My, my, my work in the Bedin that he was sitting on is taking up much of my time. And my other work in the writings of Avsadigon and the other rabbis also took up my time. This time has taken me much longer than I initially had uh, portioned out, or rationed out for myself. I did not yet reach the number, the, the, temp, the tempo of 300 commentaries. And I'm missing almost, how did I do this math? 25 of the third hundred. Meaning, I'm missing the end piece. I didn't get to those rabbis yet. And because I see that I'm no longer a young man, I looked up this poem of Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra and I printed it at home, but I didn't bring it here. And I'm sorry, but he's making a reference to a poem of Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra. I printed it, I didn't bring it. I decided to change path, you know, root recalculation, and to print what I have so far. And I have fulfilled what Rabbi Tarfon says, in the end of the second chapter of Avot, the job is not yours to finish. You're not exempt from trying, but the job is not yours to finish. But the earlier rabbis have already taught, that once an idea is born into the world, it doesn't go unanswered. And that idea floats around the spheres of the world until it finds the right place to come true. It will grow a, a, a flesh and, and uh, sinews and it will come to life. Meaning, 
you give birth to an idea, don't think that idea is yours. The intellectual copyright is a very complicated thing to prove in halakha. You give birth to an idea, even in your conscious, you didn't, you didn't even, you give birth to this idea. Now you, cr- you created an idea in the world. If you are not the one to fulfill it, it will float around in the world until someone else does. You enabled it to come into the world. But someone else can take it first. By the way, by the way, from here, and there was a famous quote from one of the high-tech, uh, maybe one of the CEOs, uh, you probably know better than me. He said, follow your dreams, because if not, somebody else will pay you to follow theirs. And this is really what happens. You know, you could be the one who, who changes the world, or somebody else will hire you to do all the work, so you follow their dream. Very often you think because an idea is yours, it's going to stay with you forever. But you gave birth to the idea. Just because you gave birth to the idea doesn't mean that it's yours. And if you don't act while it's hot, someone else might get it before you. You have halakhot like this. Someone suggests a shidduch. You know, maybe you should meet this girl, maybe you should meet this guy. Chachamim say there are even days where normally you wouldn't do such a happy event. Let's say the nine days. And we do an engagement party in the nine days. Why? Shema. What does Ma'an say? Maybe. Maybe someone else will come and get her first. Who's promising you that you have time? I tell this to young people all the time. No pressure to those of you who are dating. You're hanging out with a girl. You're hanging out with a guy. How long are you going to hang out with each other? Until you're, I'm not talking here from a religious area at all. You think that you have each other for as long as you want. Who's promising you someone else doesn't show up on the scene and take you? Take her? One more question from Castanets. I'm not sure yet. And then the other person meets somebody. Who is her? Who is her? And... Have the elf of have those make a thousand differences. I want some Costco, and I, I saw something. I wanted it was the this last one. I wasn't sure should I buy it, should I not? It's a lot of money. Nah, okay. As if we don't spend a lot of money in Costco. And I went home to talk to my wife. I came back to get it. It was gone. And I tell the guy, listen, I was gonna buy it. If someone took it, if someone bought it. So if you look at the computer, the closest one is in Tucson, Arizona. Great. Uh, okay, that doesn't help me at all. And he said, you know, the rule in Costco is just if you see it and you want it, buy it because you can always return it. I said, you know, but I'm a rabbi and part of halakha is, I can't, as a Jewish law says, you can't just buy things knowing you're going to return them. That's against Jewish law. He said, in Costco, we're okay with you buying stuff if you want to return them. Just buy it, think about returning it later. And that should be, don't do that at Costco, but do that in your life. Jump on an idea. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but be the one to jump on it. This is what he says, because I know that my job is not over, I gave birth to this idea. I'm hoping that others will fulfill the job for me. Even if they finish this work, not according to my philosophy, even according to their own. And I have never until today held back from anybody to come into my library and take copies of the Rambam's manuscripts that I own personally. My personal collection is not personal. You have to understand what a truth seeker you have to be for that. You have proprietary rights to some kind of merchandise. You have the best Rambam around. And you say, I don't care. I don't care if you come to my office and photocopy. As long as your goal is to print better Rambams, that's all I want. And essentially that's what this 
company does also. If you go to their website, you could choose to buy this book. If you can't afford to buy the book, for whatever reason you're on the run, you can click, I want a digital copy, and you can view it for free online in their browser. You can download it. I guess that there's reason that, you know, the way it works is that someone else is going to print it. <laughs> and then that, that's already a different story. They say once, uh, once when, it's not a true story. Bill Gates wanted to release the new Microsoft Word. And he was trying to figure out, aside from the U.S., where should he release it? Like, what's the next country that is really into high-tech and has computers? It's in Israel. <laughs> so he opened up a branch in Israel. Microsoft Word hits the stores. And after a year, he goes for the annual review. And they found out they only sold one copy. But everyone in Israel has Microsoft Word. <laughs> <laughs> I understand then why they don't, uh, why they don't give you a downloadable version. Yes? But the idea of I want everyone to have access to this is is a real one. It's true. Gemaran Sota has an interesting story. You know, in the olden days when the rabbi would speak, there was someone called a Meturgeman. What's a Meturgeman? Translate. Loudspeaker. Yeah, we use translator, but really it's a loudspeaker. The rabbi has a thousand people in the audience. He, can, he can't scream all the time. He's teaching. So he does is he speaks like this, and after every paragraph he stops, and someone else broadcasts in a loud voice to everybody else. Old school microphones. Megaphones, I guess would be that. And the Metul Geman, sometimes you had to make sure that the translator was uh, accurately translating your information. Yeah. I have this issue with Ovadia sometimes. Ovadia, um, I sometimes say, Ovadia, I need you to translate for me X, Y, and Z. And Ovadia is so nice. <laughs> and he says things so nice, but I'm not trying to be nice. I want to be mean, so let me be mean. Ovadia is a good guy. So when I'm translating, don't comment, just translate. Yes? You ever seen something translated with Google Translate? It doesn't work so well. That's why I have Ovadia. <laughs> well, it helps me a lot. But we have a concept of Matul Geman with the Gemara. So the Gemara mentions there was a Matul Geman that he was translating for a Chacham. And whenever the Chacham would say something and he would give a reason for why he said this halakha, the translator would interpret it differently than the rabbi. So the rabbi's reason is good for nothing. I'm... And this rabbi would be quiet. Why? Because of his humility. Well, maybe he's right. Maybe that's a better answer than mine. A better reason than mine. So once the wife of the translator of the Meturgeman of Rabbi Abahu, Rabbi Abahu's Meturgeman comes, uh, his wife comes to the wife of Rabbi Abahu. So there's two wives. One of the wife of the translator, one's the wife of Rabbi Abahu. And she says, my husband, he's such a big family, he doesn't even need your husband. He doesn't need this job to sit there and translate for your megaphone, your husband. He could teach a class on his own. He just, you know, he's a humble guy. So he bends over backwards uh, to show like he respects your husband. And this, you know, the wife got really worked up. Who are you? Who are you talking to my husband like that? She goes to Rebbe And is it true? And he says, listen, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. Both of us will praise the Kosh Baruch together. It's like the attitude of Moshe Rabbeinu when they tell him that there are rogue prophets in the Jewish people. Remember this? That they're mitnabim. And then the Naar runs to Moshe Rabbeinu and says, Adonim Moshe, you should put them in prison. Or maybe not. It's not. Different people have different understandings of the next word in the Pasuk. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, I wish 
I wish that everybody in Am Yisrael would be a prophet. Says Rav Kapach, I don't mind. I don't mind if other people take the books and continue the work as long as they get the work done. Both of us will pray to Kodesh together. As long as the matara, the goal will be reached, it's a great goal. In Yemen, that was a minhag. Not right, kundres, but right, kundres, with a dalit. Vidapim, vachatsei dapim, bodidim, atikim, bod, mikor chavei hayad achazaka, vishamihem korvim litparut, vainam litinim, litanim laavram yad yad. So there are some manuscripts I have. There are little letters or, or remnants of pages that if you were to open them, they would crumble because they're so old. So those I don't let people copy because I don't touch them. Uvahem, bechula, mishtamesh, anik edmu, bimahadoratizo. And I use all of those manuscripts in this current printing. And sometimes I find beautiful versions that really light up my eyes. Like I mentioned in my footnotes. Okay, this part is already another, another topic which we'll do tomorrow. But says I want the work to get done. I didn't finish. You have the majority of my work. And I set out to give you almost 300 commentaries on the Rambam. I have some missing. But I give permission for any Tamil Chacham who comes after me, who has a desire in their heart to teach Rambam properly, to bring about proper Nuschot of the Rambam, to use my work as a stepping stool for their own. I did that in life, as we were mentioning before about ideas and taking ideas, making sure you jump on an idea before someone else jumps on it. There's the ability also to say, I can't do it alone. I jumped on an idea. I gave birth to this idea. I followed through with this idea. In order for this idea to be successful, I must pass the baton on to someone else who can do a better job than I can. The greatness of such a person is, is you can't even imagine. But very, it's very hard to find such a person. Someone who says, you know, I've reached my limit. This is what I can do. I have to give someone else the baton who could do a better job than me. But I think when you see somebody like that, instead of judging them, say, oh wow, she didn't even give us a full book, so why, did, why do we bother buying this book if it's incomplete? Instead of looking like that, Say, you got 275 commentaries in the Rambam from a Tamil Chacham who's like the Rambam incarnate. I'm not talking about reincarnation, it's just the Rambam in this world. And somebody who's so humble that he says, you know, my, my magnum opus, my work of my life, I'm really happy if someone else comes along and continues it, not even the way that I did. There's a book, Kavachayim. Uh, the, the author passed away before the last volume was finished. And the son of the author reached out to Rabbi Vadi Yosef and asked him, you know, his father passed away. Would Rabbi Vadi Yosef be able to continue writing the commentary in the Shulchan Aruch as if he was his father? And he did. And there were wars, whether Rabbi Vadi Yosef was being honest or not. And why, at the end of the day, he was trying to write a book as if it was someone he was not. But that worked. That, that ability to say, I didn't finish, but I trust someone else to take over from me. Very few people are big enough to do that. And when you meet a person who's big enough to do that, cling to them like you cling to life itself.